0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen.
1: VoiceOver on.
0: Settings. So you can navigate it just by listening.
1: Books. Contacts. Calendar. Double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11.
0: And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone.
2: There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. This is the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today we'll discuss the battle at the bottom, big wins for both Leeds and Watford. You'll also find out who Alison Rudd was talking about when she said this.
3: Odd appointment after peculiar appointment at a We'll
2: also discuss events at Stamford Bridge. Should questions on Saudi Arabia be directed at the Newcastle boss, Eddie Howe? We'll discuss Cristiano Ronaldo being the greatest goal scoring ever and give you some reasons to be cheerful as well. This is the game. Hello again. Welcome back to the game. I'm Hugh woodson alongside Matt Dickinson and Alison Rudd on this week's episode of The Game. It was an interesting weekend in the Premier League. I like the idea of so many games on a Sunday. Just remember that for all my blackout arguments. You know, Sunday wasn't too bad, was it? Anyway, huge games at the bottom of the table. That's what we're going to start with. And in particular, Ellen Road, a first win for manager Jesse Marsh. Leeds beating Norwich two goals to one, a very eventful game. Leeds now four points clear of the relegation zone. Joe Geldhart uh, with a 95th minute winner after Kenny McLean had equalised for Norwich after 92 minutes. But how critical could this win be in Leeds season? What do you think, Alison?
3: Still reeling from the fact that Jesse Marsh said he'll remember this result on his deathbed. I mean, get a grip. (laughs)
1: <laughs> he's, enthusiastic. If he finds, he's enthusiastic if he
3: finds a late winner against Norwich <laughs> something he's going to be
2: he, does, he, does, he doesn't like the comparisons with Ted Lasso and then he comes out with that I don't I, the, yeah
1: he's, he's sort of the, the defence um, about the defensiveness about uh, Ted Lasso I I couldn't understand though I mean you know who didn't want Ted Lasso in the charge of their team mm. I mean the feel-good manager of all time anyway and they make a nice tv show out of it that might be more interesting than all the guff amazon ones that we see so
3: <laughs> i find leads now have become funnier than ted lasso because i still get the sense that the Leeds fans would be happier losing under bielsa than scraping a win against norwich under a new american owner um, who is the exact opposite is so opposite to Bill, so it's untrue. I mean, football does this. I mean, the golden rule of football is that, you know, a manager is sacked, the next manager is always different. And it happens with the, you know, England managers. They see-saw, so, you, you, you know, you go from hyper-emotional to very serious, English to non-English and so on. And it happens at club level as well. So you've gone from a man who refused to speak English, who sat on a bucket and somehow was treated as a god... And then you've got an American who you do feel would talk forever and ever and ever if allowed to. And his hyperbole is ridiculous. I mean, I'll remember this on my deathbed, which makes him sound like he's slightly out of his depth. And I do worry about the games to come that he needs to keep a, a lid on it, really, and realize this is what it was, which was a very, very close shave with some, you know, it's what's promising is that the players seem to be giving him everything and he's going to get Bamford back from injuries. is fantastic. That, but that would have been fantastic under Bielsa, wouldn't it? The team have bought into him. They're not on strike, but I do feel the atmosphere at Ellen Road isn't the same. So it's it's strange. They're in more need than ever of the fans to be that sort of, you know, so totally, totally behind them. They they, do, they create this incredible roar of, a, of support. Didn't used to get despondent when they went behind, but now I feel that you know I mean Martin, Martin um yeah Martin Hardy was there for us and he he commented on now uh, this, this the complete sense of deflation when Norwich uh, pulled a goal back and that wouldn't have happened when bielsa was there they they would have just kept on roaring so there's there's this, this is sort of he's got to be oh it's, it's a difficult path for him to navigate I feel Marsh and I just don't think he's <laughs> helped himself by this narrow two one defeat over the only team we can say for certain does look like it's going down, is in some way the amazing miracle he's painting it as and has affected him so deeply.
1: But it was a game they needed to win. I yeah, mean, exactly. It was- six six straight defeat and and you know, to be fair to him, you know, when you throw on a teenager with, you know, a few kicks left in the game and he pops up with with the winner like that, then yeah. Will we'll, uh, I? I'm giving him a bit more slack on the <laughs> excite, excitability. <laughs> no, it was huge. I mean, it was huge. It's, you know, we bang on about momentum and Louise, Leeds' momentum was was you know downward plummet um, and that could be the most important goal that they have score all season.
2: In, in a way, going away from home might help them as well because you did, I was at Elland Road last week and you did feel this sense of brilliant support at the start of the game, feeling like, you know, this is Leeds, we need to back the team completely and then things going very, very sour and the team getting booed off at the end of the game. Marcelo Bielsa's name being chanted. Abuse being directed towards the director of football, uh, Victor Orta, who was in tears at the end of the game against Norwich as well. And you felt this very strange, you know, can we all keep it together here, guys? There are still some games to come. It wasn't the final day of the season. And he still might be going down. And I still worry for them. I feel like people took a lot from this weekend's results as an indication that maybe some teams have some life in them that, that maybe they don't. And we'll come to a couple of those in a minute. But I did want to talk about Patrick Bamford, who is back for Leeds, looks pretty tired, worked his socks off. He's been out for a long time. I know he made his return in their previous match, but he started this game... And he made a big difference because they created a huge number of chances off his link-up play. Is his presence, Matt, going to be enough to keep Leeds up?
1: Well, you know, he's a huge option. We've seen that for, for Leeds over the last couple of years. So, I mean, in itself, to get him back at a key point, we're talking about, you know not just tactical options, but bringing a different mood to it as well. Um, and as you say, I mean, he played well. He was in, he, he obviously ran out of steam, uh, quickly taken off at half time. But I think it's uh, to have a senior player, have a strike about, I mean, to, often when I'm looking at who the teams are going to go down, you're looking at generally, I look at the attacking option just say who's got who's got goals in them to 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 get out of trouble because you know wins at this stage uh, account so so hugely and bamford just by there you know whether he's scoring himself or not, but as you say, bringing a different mode to the Leeds attack uh, i think I think is key, but you know having said all that that pooky chance at the end. Uh, you know, I mean, it was complete, you know, heart and mouth moment, and um, that goes a, f- a foot to the side, and um, it, we're talking a very, very different story. Mm. Also,
2: Rodrigo's goal—the first goal—was offside. Patrick Bamford makes the run, stretches the defensive line. He's off, even though he doesn't interfere with play. Although I do think he did run towards the general area that the ball was landing in. The defender heads it back into open play. Dan James wins the second ball. It drops to Rodrigo's feet and he hits it into the back of the net. But that should be offside. The defender would not have headed the ball, wouldn't have gone for the ball um, had he known that Bamford was offside. But because there's an element of doubt, he heads it. That's well, offside. and
1: it's delayed sides, which is is, is mm. infuri- infuriates me week after week. But
2: and the same is true um, of Harry Maguire's own goal because he wouldn't have cut that ball out if Romero wasn't in the middle in the game between Spurs and Manchester United. It goes into the back of the net, but he only he only extends his leg for the ball to stop it from going to that player and that player is offside I believe that is offside
3: you need need all the defenders to have their brains attached to a great big computer which is then at Stockley Park and they can work out what they were actually feeling and thinking (laughs) and then you will know if someone's offside or not because if the defender is having to consider them then they're offside if the defender hasn't noticed them or has decided not to bother with them then it's onside
2: Still, a big win for Leeds this weekend and Jesse Marsh possibly breathing new life uh, into their chances of staying in the Premier League. Elsewhere, big win for Watford away from home against Southampton. 2-1 win. They move on to 22 points. They're level with Everton, who are just above them on goal difference. Um, And we'll come to Everton shortly. But Roy Hodgson, do we think he's going to get
3: Watford out of this Well, if he dressed as smartly as that every week, then absolutely he looked like a retired (laughs) colonel who'd just come to tell everybody, well, this is what's what. And uh, I've had enough of bad defending and not being attacking enough. We're going to do it properly chaps and I'm going to wear a blazer and it's fine and everyone was I mean you could see Hassan Hüthel was like oh my goodness I look a real mess compared to Roy and he just couldn't manage them anymore uh, I, I don't I mean I'm being sarcastic and yet there might be something in it I did feel like it felt like Roy was like metaphorically rolling up his sleeves and saying like right, come on we are we are not a bad team here and they're not a bad team they have some great players they just need to be organized properly and that's what Roy does well so that that is why I will say yes I think they possibly do have what it takes because I think they've got as as my colleague Matt has just said you look at their attacking options they have fantastic attacking options you and what you and in the dugout you need someone who can rein it all in and make sure they don't uh, go too berserk and that is what Roy is, you know, he's the voice of reason. So I think they do, and they have lots of lots of six pointers coming up. They seem to be only playing teams in and around them. So yeah, I think they could just just do it. Do do
2: you want them to stay up? See, that's the big question for me. Do we want Watford to stay in the Premier League, or should they be punished for their chopping and changing of managers?
3: Oh, that is so interesting. (laughs) It's so interesting because we this is going to be a podcast really about ownership at the end of it, isn't it? And uh, <laughs> Watford's owners are, are not uh, engaged in sports washing, but they are engaged in being hyper trigger happy and ruthless and we have become a bit bored of it. If I want Watford to stay up it, for two reasons, I think they do have players who can score great goals and when they play well, they are really good fun to watch. They are entertaining. And I'm glad about that because Roy, when Roy came in, everyone said it's going to be very boring now. He's not a boring manager. He knows how to... He actually knows... He manages flair players very well, actually. And also, I'd like Watford to stay up because I think it's... You know, we'd start to talk about Roy's legacy given he's in his mid-70s. I don't want this to be his last job where he goes down with a club that pin their hopes on his abilities to keep them there. I think it'd be great for a very, very long, illustrious career for him to show all the, the newbies how it's done.
2: Beautiful, beautiful. There is a team we know you want to stay up, though, and that's Brentford. Well,
3: they Can't are them. staying up. It's, it's not a question. Eight
2: points clear of the relegation zone. Back to back wins. They beat 19th placed Burnley 2 0. Christian Eriksen's relationship with Ivan Toney seems to have struck the right chord immediately.
3: Yeah, and I'm, 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 they're made for each other. It's, you know, <laughs> you need somebody who, uh, you need an intelligent centre forward who you know, is hungry for good passing and can judge the flight of the ball well, has the physical presence to intimidate defenders, very single-minded about getting to the ball, scoring, uh, making the runs to win penalties, whatever it is. And then you have the delicacy of Ericsson who enjoys knowing someone's going to respond to his passing in that way. What is it? Is it sort of like, it was so predictable in a way and I'm... Please, I mean, Ericsson is not going to save Brentford from relegation because of his um, physicality in the middle of the pitch or his tracking back necessarily. But he can slot into Brentford and they don't lose anything because they are, everyone around him is particularly hard working. They give it everything. So they can absorb the fact he's not, you know, hugely important in their defensive shape which allows him space and time to be creative and is and he, that's what he's doing from uh, set pieces he's he well he is at, actually statistically the best in the premier league if you could take his whole career into account uh so he's delivering from set pieces and also in play his his reading of the game is is first class and around him he has players who are just hungry for that that quality i just cannot see Brentford not staying up.
2: So we can safely say then, I think, that Brentford are going to be safe. So we'll, we'll leave them out of our relegation yeah, chats between that. between here and the end of the season. But one team that's going to be firmly ensconced in them, I think, is Everton. Matt, they lost at home to Wolves this weekend. For some people, that was a surprising result. For me, not at all, really. I, I'm not expecting much from Everton at the moment. How worried should their fans be right now?
1: And did you expect more from Frank Lampard in this job? Uh, well, I can tell you exactly how worried they are because the Everton contingent from my, uh, my family were around at the weekend. And um, at one stage we were sort of um, joking about uh, QPR v Everton in the Championship next season, but obviously now QPR being promoted, we're actually going to pass, <laughs> we're going to pass them. Uh, pass them as we head up, but no, I mean, uh, you know, yeah, they they are genuinely worried and every right to be. And that was even before this result, and that was even before looking at the fixture list. Um, when, when you look at, you know, we've obviously got the form table in the game this morning, which shows Everton firmly rooted to the bottom, four points from eleven matches. Then you look at they're playing Newcastle, who obviously we know are, uh, are, are playing well at the moment. Then in the league they've got uh, West Ham away, tough game. Man United at home, uh, the Mersey Derby, Chelsea, Leicester away. I mean, you know, you you could look at those and think, well, you know, they they could easily lose all of those. I mm-hmm. mean, it's you know, you you would not, on current form, they will. So. You know, it wasn't hopeless. Um, Richardson has a couple of great, Richardson, I thought, you know, look, looked, at... it wasn't a team that was giving up, but obviously, certainly goal scoring confidence is, is rock bottom. Um, Calvert-Lewin still uh, w- w- was obviously absent. And, uh, you know, Frank Lampard, is a manager that we still don't know how good he is. And and that's, you know, the, I think if you're looking for reasons to be, oh, well, they'll turn it around or, you know, they'll get out of this. You know, Frank Frank's as much of a question mark as, as anything over this. You know, this is uncharted territory for him as well. So, uh, you know, I'd, you look at the squad and think, yes, they should stay up. They can get Calvert-Lewin back. You, th- you think back to that issue of, you know, is a team... You know, got the, the tools to get out of this, or, well, yeah, very clearly they have, but the defense remains prone to all kinds of, you know, the, there are very few of those defenders that I think are, a, what I was going to say, top half Premier League. Some of them I'm not even sure are Premier League. And I, I, I think they'll stay up, but I would be very, very worried. And I think it's just, you know, Mashiri is reaping what he showed with just colossal misjudgments pretty much every step of the way.
3: It was a very peculiar appointment, Frank Lampard, really. And who did Frank Lampard bring in? He brought in uh, Donny van der Beek and Deli Alley. They're not, with all due respect, they are not top of your shopping list if you're fighting relegation, those two players. They're just not. And Deli Alley just seems to make these sort of cameo appearances and not do very much. And uh Donny is adequate, but you know he's 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 having to get used to um a new club and in effect, he's having to get used to the Premier League. He played so little for Manchester united this isn't these are not I'm not having to go at the individual players, but it's indicative of what Lampard thought he was doing at Everton, which was bringing creativity and Lampard's philosophy is front foot football getting the ball forward quickly, he wants it to be attractive. Doesn't like too much possession. You know, get the ball forward. Let's let's be let's be entertaining. They're not in. Uh, they're not in the right place to be able to be thinking like this. This is about being making tough decisions, picking players who are tough, forgetting about style, making sure it's about grinding out wins um, and tapping into the fantastic atmosphere you can get at Goodison. But it's also an atmosphere that turns quickly, and the fact they're now losing at home as well as away from home I mean where do you go from there it's it's uh, odd appointment after peculiar appointment at a poorly run club that's right
2: not to dwell on it too much they might stay up
1: but if they were to go down Everton are we looking at like another Leeds United I mean you're certainly looking at a you know financial car crash that would be up there with you know the the worst of you know hitting a brick wall at speed that (laughs) that we've seen i mean you know they're just not a club that will have had this even relegation even on on their agenda i mean yeah the Mashiri promise was to turn this into one of the great, you know, I think was it Hollywood clubs of, of the Northwest that he, he said, yeah, you know, this was meant to be a team that was, you know, you don't appoint, you know, you don't throw squillions of pounds until Carlo Ancelotti says, oh, all right then, um, in the expectation you are gonna get relegated soon after. So no, I, it, it it would be horrendous. And this is obviously, they've got all the problems of the um, Uzmanov um, tie up, which there's, you know, reaping the the problems of, of that. And to be honest, the lack of transparency, on that is still i think raises you know some huge questions we know that they're shall we say been very close to the wind on um sustainability so yeah it's their their problems are stacked extremely high and um yeah this is this is real tightrope stuff for them now for for the rest of the season probably the most vital team in, in, in many
2: ways that needs to stay in the oh, Premier yeah, League they're, they're the least
1: least equipped to to, to, to you know they're, they're the most exposed of all mm. you know if if Burnley Norwich and Watford go down you know it's it's you know obviously colossally disappointing and you know as we know takes a some big readjustments but they're you know they know how to handle that Ever- everton would be you know it's 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 a full-blown crisis uh,
2: we'll see exactly how this relegation battle goes from here but it was an interesting weekend down there plenty still to come on the game podcast we'll be talking about chelsea and newcastle cristiano ronaldo and we'll be giving you some reasons to be cheerful but remember if you're enjoying the podcast rate us leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed The Times' chief sports correspondent, Matt Lawton, joins us next for the latest on what's been an ever-moving story. Of course, that huge news last week that saw Chelsea's owner, Roman Abramovich, sanctioned by the UK government over alleged links to the Russian president following the country's invasion of Ukraine. Of course, those links, Abramovich denies. Matt, let's get an update, though, on what's happening. Um The short term prospects for Chelsea over the weekend, we've heard so much from their fans who are are very, very worried about the situation. Is there to be a new owner? Who will it be and when?
4: Well, the first thing that's got to happen is that the government have got to issue this second license. Nothing can happen until then. It's, you know, people keep talking about, for instance, Abramovich has given the green light to sell the club. Well, now hang on a minute he's not in a position to do that anymore. It's it's up to the government to to issue this license. It will be heavily, uh, heavily restricted in the sense that it will provide the government with oversight of the process. But that's what's got to happen first Hugh and that will happen I'm pretty sure this week. Um, we spoke to Tom Roddy. Spoke to the club yesterday when he was at the when he was at Stamford Bridge, and they are hopeful too that it will happen this week. It's got to. I, I think everybody, uh, the government included, wants to see this process um, get completed. Uh, in terms of who's going to buy it, it's really difficult. It's 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 been a very unusual process because the people that certainly are viewed by some as the favourites, the Todd Bowley group. Um, they've been the most vocal from the very beginning. And that's very unusual for this kind of process. Normally um, it's, it's completely out of left field. The the people that buy these sort of football clubs don't say anything. Even the Saudis, when they bought Newcastle didn't say anything until it, it happened. Um, And yet these people, you know, one minute it's Nick Candy speaking the next minute. It's the Todd Bowley group. the, The next minute it's, it's a different consortium in America um, the fact of the matter is there are some seriously wealthy people that are hovering because it's, they can all sense there's a deal to be done here. They can all sense that the European champions, the world club champions are there to be, to be bought at a knockdown price. So you can see why there's a lot of interest. I'm just, I'm loath to predict who's actually going to end up winning.
2: Um, the funds we've heard from Petr Cech at Chelsea. Are there concerns that staff won't be paid at the club and players?
4: I think there's definitely a problem because when you're suddenly cut off from the your main income revenue, which is which is the owner Roman Abramovich worth nine billion pounds, you've suddenly got an issue. It was we broke the story on Friday night that um, they'd had their credit cards frozen. And I think what that tells you is the way that the business kind of operates, that that was a problem because when, when I spoke to, I've got to give the credit to Steve Swimford, our political editor who got the story and, and he called me and said, could I check it at the Chelsea end? So when I spoke to Chelsea, they were basically saying, this is a problem. This is going to make it even harder for us to run the club day to day. So without being too simplistic about it, uh, you, you, can, you can you can imagine they do literally pay for stuff on credit cards, and then the owner clears it at the end of the month. I I don't know whether he rings or he does it on on internet banking or whatever. But <laughs> but he, he 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 you know that's the way they operate. And suddenly having those cards frozen, essentially their line of credit blocked, because you know banks do this when, when there's something like this when you've got sanctions being imposed by the government, the banks. The banks' uh, panic's probably not the right word, but the, the banks certainly do react, and and, and in a, in a very cautious way. So they suddenly think, well, hang on a minute. Um, if if the guy with all the money has had all his assets frozen, how are they going to pay their credit card bills? And I'm assuming it's it, it isn't just eighty quid's worth of petrol for the team bus. It's it's big expenses on those cards. Um, you know, this is this is a this is a football club that has a turnover of you know. Hundreds of millions. Um, it, it, it's a problem, and so you can see why they are. Yes, there was, you know, there was a little bit of gallows humour yesterday in terms of you know, check and and Thomas Tuchel offering to drive the bus, but it's not. It's not far off being that kind of situation, unless they very quickly move on and have new owners. There
2: were conversations taking place between Chelsea and the government, though, to loosen the restrictions over them a little bit. They want a little bit more space to operate. And maybe that might mean they could bring some money in. Do we know how far those discussions have
4: gone? Well, not very far, because the fact of the matter is, is when they when they announced the the slight amendments on on Saturday, the only thing they really relaxed was how much they can spend on a match day and and that and they increased it from five hundred thousand pounds to nine hundred thousand pounds. Now that the point with that was really, the, the only reason the government um, uh, backed down on that was because it was a, a safety issue because Chelsea were making the point that, hang on a minute, if we've got 28,000, 40,000 people in the ground, we need more than 500,000 pounds to pay for all the stewarding, the police, all that kind of stuff. And so the government relented on that, but that's that that, that means they're spending more money. That, 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 that doesn't solve the problem of income coming in. One of the big things, and there were a lot of um, there was a lot of confusion around tickets, and it was, and it was, you know, well, well, why don't they just give the tickets away or donate the money to charity? But when you speak to charity, they go, no, no, no. The reason we want to be able to sell tickets beyond beyond uh, our current season ticket holders is because that's about six hundred thousand pounds a game, and they need that revenue. And the fact of the matter is, even though they sat there for two days with the government on Thursday and Friday, well, well, government officials, we should say, DCMS officials, the fact is they haven't they haven't backed down on that.
1: Matt, I mean, it always strikes me as the big question here, which I don't know how easy is to answer is, <laughs> obviously we know that Roman Abramovich had a an asking price value in, in mind for the club. We also know that he was talking about setting up this charity, but how now does that get unpicked in the sense of, you know, as you say, if the government are controlling the asset, then do they maintain that asking price? Do they put that money themselves towards the charity? Does Roman Abramovich literally have to just accept that this will be done and he just has to sort of approve whatever deal they can make with a buyer?
4: Yeah, I, look, I think the asking price, I think most people think is unrealistic. He wanted 3 billion. That was, the, that was certainly the number that the club were quite openly quoting uh, when, when this whole process started. Um, and I think really the tactics employed by the rain group has been to, uh, which is this bank in, in New York, this merchant bank in New York is to create a bidding war, you know? Um, so, so it, it's, it, I don't think it's any coincidence that we are getting to hear about all the different interested parties because it's in their interest that everyone knows about everybody else, because then you do create that sense of competition. Um, but. I think more realistically, they'll get between one and a half and 2 billion. The government, I don't think they're simply, they're not think are simply they are not going to allow um, Abramovich to set up a foundation that he controls, which the money's then paid into. They're not gonna allow that to happen. So that's what, when I talked about um, this second license coming with, with restrictions, that will be one of the restrictions. Matt, I don't know what this what it's going to look like. I don't know what this mod, this payment model is going to look like. I don't know where the buyer is going to pay the money into. Uh, that that is yet to be explained. And and to be honest, I certainly at the end of last week, I don't think anyone knew what that was going to look like. That's one of the things that they're working through at the moment. This is an unprecedented situation, but they have to. You know, as I say, I'm not suggesting for one second that Roman Abramovich would abuse. Um, uh, uh, that foundation and and, and take that money for himself at a later date and and not commit to paying money to the victims of war in Ukraine, which is the pledge that he made in that statement. Um, But the government aren't just going to sit back and go, yeah, that's fine. Okay, yeah, that's what that looks like. You know, who knows where this foundation would be based? You know, is it based in London? Is it based in Israel? Is it based in Portugal? Is it based in Russia? So, So the idea that that they're just going to allow, let's just say for argument's sake, Todd Bowley's consortium, just to send 2 billion quid to a charitable foundation that a Roman abramus just set up that's Not going to
1: happen. Also, I mean, he said that he did say net profits, didn't he? And I mean, the, I mean, it seems yeah. unthinkable in the current situation he's going to gain any profit at all. So, quite how well, it's net proceeds, net he proceed, said. yeah, so, but how,
4: yeah, how
1: that's sort of massaged by the government that you know, obviously, they can't be sending... Well,
4: yeah, absolutely. Again, he said in the statement, uh, that he would take nothing from it, and, and the club have backed that up. I, I, I. Was a point last week when i i was talking to the club and the person i was talking to at the club bruce buck the chairman was 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 standing there and and yeah, i was being guided no none of this money will go to abramovich he's written off the 1.5 billion pound uh, uh loan that he's owed by the club so once you've cleared the 58 million that they owe to creditors, and you've cleared and you've paid the, the fees, basically you've paid the stamp duty, you've paid the Rain Group. You know the way it was explained to me, if it was for argument's sake, two billion, then most of that would go into this foundation. And as I say. That could still look like profit if Abramovich had control of that foundation. So that's what they've got to work out. You know, I don't know whether there's going to be some kind of almost like a, a like a holding bank, a holding account for this money. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, every every transaction that's done in the transfer market in in English football, whether it's abroad or whatever, the money goes through the FA. So this is not unusual in football. So the money is paid to the FA and then it's paid on. Agents get paid through the FA. Um, So there will be mechanisms where where this can happen. And, And that is part of the control that the government now have, having frozen his assets here in the UK. Matt,
2: on Thursday, you argued in the Times that Roman Abramovich's arrival has transformed the game. So should his exit. You still feel the same way because i'm sure you must have had some reaction to that and tell us exactly what you meant by it
1: i mean i don't mean there's any doubt his arrival did um i mean i think it's you know and i said i think uh, among many things i mean obviously there was uh, just the impact of of his signings of what he did at chelsea but there was obviously huge wider uh, ramifications of of huge inflation uh, in the game. I think he sort of became the poster boy of what could be done with club ownership. Um, and obviously, you know, this was predating sovereign wealth funds coming in. But so, you yeah, know, we've seen a, a transformation of the model of ownership. And um, we've seen a, 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 rely, a we've I think we've seen the the, the idea come in of we'll take the money wherever it comes from and we will ask questions afterwards. We've seen this escalation of sort of, you know, fans, you know, my owner's richer than your owner, Uh, you know, there's almost a a sort of bragging rights uh, uh, about that. And obviously, you know, Chelsea playing Newcastle brought that to a a head this weekend. And what I mean by transforming the exit, I I think we're all asking huge questions now about the fact that we, we all just said, you know, we'll take the money wherever it comes from or we'll ask questions afterwards or we will just indulge in this ultra free market ultra money based league and i think i certainly am and I, everyone i speak to is asking big hard very hard to answer questions about what is the alternative how do you wean yourself off that model how do you sell wean yourself off the money and those are not you know, owen slot our colleague wrote a piece on Uh, Saturday morning about you know do we look at the German model but I mean you know to to change models now is revolutionary and I'm not suggesting I've got any easy answers obviously there's a the Tracy Crouch report that's still sort of being kicked around we're waiting for government to come back on that we're looking at whether a regulator makes a difference but I think even Tracy would say that the regulations as stand pre what you know Ukraine invasion would not have stopped Roman Abramovich buying the club any more than they'd have stopped Saudi Arabia buying the club so if we want to put football clubs on a different footing and a different sort of buyability from you know owning a company an airline a you know mansion in in Knightsbridge then that is going to take a whole lot of protections that we have never put around football clubs in this country and that's that's, that's a, a big thing to ask, but I, th- I I think if we're not asking these questions now, then we never will.
3: If you accept that football's football clubs are different to owning an office block or whatever, um, that's what makes them in, v- very vulnerable to sports washing, and that means you do need completely different set of parameters when you assess who owns them. You can't you can't be romantic about what football means to communities and how important it is to people. And it is, I mean, for some people, it is everything. And for some communities, it is desperately important. To, to then, we can't sort of shift one minute, say, well, it's a business, has to be profitable, you have to get people in, you've got lots of dosh. And on the other hand, say, it's not a normal business. There is more going on here. There is a reason certain people and organisations buy football clubs to either divert from what they do in the real world or they want to appear. Uh, more avuncular than they really are and if you accept that football is being used then you have to be just a bit more brutal about how you you assess who owns them.
1: Also I mean and let's be realistic if we're going to you know look at this and look at it properly because I think we can all talk about it and fret about it but to actually you know expect that you know we would potentially put in protections around it we might have to accept that it would no longer be the great global league that people have have loved and thrived on you know if you if you make it much harder for rich people wherever they come from to buy football clubs then the chances are you know we get sort of you know scaling down the operation and it will not be the great cosmopolitan league and we will not be richer than other leagues and is that something we're we're willing to sacrifice so you know this it feels it feels like a moment now that it's quite possible we've had moments before and it 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 could be one of those ones we chat about a lot and then no one can come up with it no one can agree because this Mm. is the hardest thing you know this will take none of this is easy you know tracy crouch's regulated report and which stops a long way short of the type of things that alice and i you know just alluded to even that which stops a long way short of that is not something that just gets sort of brushed through you know five minutes that's that's taking months months if not years to to bring to bear so that you know this is this is you know big existential you know debates, not just sort of stuff that gets you know football can't agree on anything at the best of times. See, this is the
2: only time, and I very rarely feel sorry for the Premier League. But listening to the radio over the weekend and hearing them so heavily criticised for allowing these owners, and it was coming from, of course, the game at Stamford Bridge between Chelsea and Newcastle. I felt, well, hold on a minute. I, again, you know, I love to criticise the Premier League, but. You're asking them as a commercial entity to take a stance and make a decision on who invests money into the clubs in English football that... The UK government over the course of decades and longer um, hasn't taken on businesses in this country at all. They have, in fact, encouraged foreign investment wherever it is from, whatever question marks there might be over that money into every sector, every industry, not just in football. And so football would sit back and say, well, are we holding ourselves back by saying no to these people when they're not being said no to in The legal sector, I don't know, or um, in in the city or in Canary Wharf or wherever it might be, that money is, you know, it's given the red carpet. So it's, it's, you know, again, I would criticise them for not having stronger rules and I wish they did have stronger rules, but they would be the sole entity, if you like, in this country saying no to, for example, Saudi investment. Our government doesn't have a problem with doing deals with people from Saudi Arabia.
1: Why should football? That's what people will say. But I think that's why, I mean, well, you know, this yeah. is why it's big issues about, you know, I, I don't think a morality test will work, for example, because, you know, and, and that's if essentially what we're, you know, because, uh, you know, everyone's going to have a different, you know, line in the, in the sand that they would draw on morality. So I think it you do have to look at the model. I mean, I think they say that's why, Owen was right to raise the German example because then you're talking about trying to create a model where it is, there's some sort of consistency and some sort of idea that, you know, football clubs are as entities treated separately rather than trying to do it as a case by case of well you know we'll allow a qatari owner but we won't allow a saudi owner we'll allow a saudi owner but we won't allow a russian owner or a china you know chinese owner so you know if you're trying to make those case by case decisions we're going to tie ourselves in knots so that's why i think this is a bigger issue than that this is actually looking at the entire model of What we allow, you know, the you know, as I say, Owen obviously went into the the whole sort of um, fifty plus one, you know, German idea of you know, and even that's got holes and flaws in it, as we've seen. If
3: Newcastle were under that German model, where it was effectively fan-led, they would have still backed the the Saudi bid because they are they are obsessed with getting money in and being big at last.
1: Well, I think every-
3: over eighty percent, over, over it's close to ninety percent of fans are very happy with what the, the model they've got now.
4: I think they were obsessed at as well, Alison, because they they'd had a taste of it before, because because in the nineties they they had Sir John Hall up there and, and they were in the big league. They were beating Manchester United to Alan Shearer's signature. I still remember being on holiday and seeing fifteen million pounds for Alan Shearer. I couldn't believe it. I was like, 15 million pounds for a footballer but that was Newcastle United they were in the big league they know what it's like to be in there and and, and to be able to get the best players and and, and be signing people like Ginola and and, and so on and yeah I think you're dead right I think I think they would have it would have been a stampede to get the uh, to get the Saudis to uh, to to buy them if it had been up to the fans Uh, and, and I think this ultimately here is what what's going on at Chelsea right now their biggest concern is that they're suddenly not going to be among this top tier of of, 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 the super rich anymore. That's all they care about. You know, that is literally all they care about. And that's why you get this, these daft sort, sort of statements being made by fans outside Stamford bridge where they're moaning about, you know, leave us alone. You know, it's purely because they're thinking, hang on a minute, we've been at the top table for 20 years. This could all end depending on who comes in. Mm. Listen, I've always said
2: um, that football clubs should be listed in some way for their cultural significance in our country. We know how significant football is. Um, I remember looking for a house and my, my partner sent me one in the Cotswolds and it was a little cottage by a brook and it was lovely. And it said, look, you can buy it. You can own it but it's a 16th century cottage. You can't change it. You can't do anything to it. And honestly, you know, being over six foot, it was like going into one of the Hobbit's houses. I mean, I was like, I couldn't physically live there. And I don't think anyone knows that this little cottage exists. I mean, it doesn't have that level of significance, in my opinion. Maybe people in the Cotswolds will tell me differently. Um, But these football clubs have huge significance. And the idea that we haven't in any way protected them, that we've in fact allowed a club to move from Wimbledon to Milton Keynes out of the heart of its community shows that there has been an issue over the course of time with, I, th- I think, not protecting football clubs. And we could talk about it for a full hour, but I do want to move on to events at Stamford Bridge. Alison, I know that you were there. Chelsea hosting Newcastle, two Premier League clubs accused by many of sports washing Newcastle's 80% owners. We know the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia, Chelsea, of course, owned by Roman Abramovich, 100%. Both clubs deny any allegations of sports washing, of course. Um what was it like being there? How did you feel about the fixture?
3: Well I went into the it went into the fixture thinking, well this is significant and I called it the ethics derby and that's how it felt. Um there were nuanced points and there were big heavy slap you over the head points as well. Um there is still a flag uh talking about the Roman Empire on written on a, a Russian flag. It's a very old flag, but you know, you do feel someone should have taken it down, simply because it was Russian. Take it down. Have some um, common sense and decency. But the atmosphere, and there were Saudi flags being flown in the away end, which given it was one day after uh, Saudi Arabia announced they'd executed 81 men in a single day. Uh, absolutely, people do not think about what they're doing, it seems to me. I mean, we're talking about the beauty of football and how important it is to a community, but it also allows people to completely switch off from the real world. And uh, it just felt very crass, indeed, that nobody uh, amongst the Newcastle contingent seemed to feel in any way embarrassed or uh, have any deep thought about what that meant, that 81 men were killed in one day. And various um, human rights groups say those men were not given fair trials and some had been tortured but let's let's fly the Saudi flag in the away and very strange uh, the game the atmosphere other than the Newcastle fans who did not shut up the uh, Chelsea fans were subdued mostly um, and th- the thing that was different I've been to going to Stanford Bridge for work for 27 years I've seen games where Chelsea have been dominant uh, I've seen games where they have not um, seen all different types of atmospheres felt different types of atmospheres rather when Kai Havertz scored in the 89th minute after a game in which Newcastle looked perfectly, you know, um, capable of setting setting up to at least get a draw out of it, Chelsea were not really firing. If they if they don't have their first choice wing backs, they're not they're not the best best form generally. But, so they weren't playing that well. Um, I'm pleased that um, Thomas Tuchel didn't try and pretend. They weren't distracted by all the events we've been talking about, although he didn't say that was the entire excuse, but he said it was a, a factor. But when Kai Havert scored a quite beautiful goal in the 89th minute, um the noise that came from the fans, I, I have not heard that at the bridge before. It it was clearly, you know, relief. It wasn't but it wasn't joy. It was it was felt much more emotional, as though for just for that second everybody who was there was releasing all their confusion about how they were supposed to feel about it. A lot of Chelsea fans I know are finding it difficult to be told they're supposed to now hate Roman Abramovich, having considered him for the past 19 years to be a largely avuncular presence, who's learned as he's gone along, was the first to U-turn on the European Super League. He's an oligarch that they feel they have a connection with. He's always been very close to the players. He's always put the players first. They have built a relationship with him. And to be suddenly told everything for the past nearly 20 years they've been feeling is wrong to feel. And all that came out in that celebration of that goal. And it was, I'm not going to say it was moving. It wasn't moving. It was curious. Um, and i I did sort of feel, God, you know, It's very easy to pontificate about politics and rights and wrongs. But if you're a fan, you're having to grapple with changing your emotion. That's not an easy thing to do.
2: You do mention that Newcastle's trip to Chelsea came uh, on the day it was revealed 81 alleged members of a terrorist group, Al Qaeda of course, were ordered to be killed in a single day in Saudi Arabia. That is the largest mass execution in the country's history. Afterwards, the Newcastle manager, Eddie Howe, was asked about it. He said, I'm here to manage the football team, coach the football team. I'm well aware of what's going on around the world, but my focus is on trying to produce the team to try and win football matches and get enough points to stay in the league. That's all I'll talk about. And we've had this debate around Thomas Tuchel recently as well and the questions that were put to him over Abramovich. Fans are never happy with the journalists that ask these questions. Do you think journalists, Matt Dickinson, should be asking these questions to managers?
1: Uh, Absolutely. I mean, why not? I mean, it's you know, um, people say, "Oh, keep keep the sport and politics separate." But I mean, I think anyone who's been arguing that has had a bit of an awakening in the last couple of weeks, haven't they? I mean, you know, we look at the situation at Chelsea. Of course, it's uh, back to this point, though, of whether. I get who the, those colleagues of of ours who asked those questions, I get why they did it. But the question is, are we going to keep doing this? Is this going to be a moment that we just sort of, everyone suddenly is alert to sports washing for, for five minutes, for, for a week, for two games, and then we move on quickly? Or are we going to actually look at this? Because, you know, Eddie Howe's answer was, you know, uh, felt, shall we say, ins- insufficient would be, um, Will be the, the the kind way of putting it but it's not really about him is it it's not you know we're not going to f- fix the world just because eddie Howe says i read about those executions and it was terrible or you know comes out with a half hour speech you know this, this is a bigger issue about what we were talking about before about who owns our clubs how we allow sports washing what is that about and so it's perfectly fair to ask Eddie Howe the question it's fair to criticize him for the answer but it's also a much bigger issue than Eddie Howe.
2: Matt Lawson, before you go, what did you make of Howe's responses? Did you expect more?
4: Um, I didn't expect more, but I do think it's a fair question. I think anyone that has... See, whether it's Chelsea or um, uh, uh, Newcastle, I'm sympathetic to the people that were already there Uh, I'm sympathetic to the Newcastle players who suddenly they have a different owner. It's circumstances beyond their control. And they may not be terribly comfortable with the fact that they're now being paid by the public investment fund in Saudi Arabia um, when they were previously being paid by Mike Ashley. Um, And and I'm sympathetic to to some extent with the people at Chelsea because it's only really become a massive issue since Putin chose to invade Ukraine, and and now suddenly it's very uncomfortable. I thought David Walsh wrote a very good piece yesterday about the fact that, you know, it's unfair just to suddenly take a view of all Chelsea's success, you know, through a different through a different prism. You know, it, 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 you know we weren't particularly questioning at the time. I know Matthew said routinely would write a very good piece about Abramovich, but but for the most part, we all kind of accepted that uh, there was Russian money there and, and we all applauded when Drogba scored the winning penalty in Munich. Um, but if you've chosen to go there and chosen to work there, I think tough if you keep getting asked these questions. I actually thought Eddie Howe got a pretty easy ride when he was unveiled as manager. Um, I think Dan Ashworth, when he eventually rolls up at Newcastle, deserves to be grilled on it. Yeah, he had a very good job down at Brighton. He has gone to, and he has got, he is going to Newcastle. He's accepting the Saudi money. He's taken a massive pay rise from the Saudis. I think it becomes very difficult for them if they're going to if they're going to continue to sort of support the Rainbow Laces campaign or, or, or other sort of human rights issues, uh, and yet take the Saudi money. Um, as I say, I think anyone that's chosen to go and work for for Newcastle. Um, these questions should keep coming. We should ask them every time it seems appropriate.
2: Right, Matt Lawton, thank you for being with us on the Game Podcast. It's literally on your bike to Matt. Off you go. Yeah. A bit of exercise Cheers. in the morning. See you later. Appreciate it. Yeah, Take everybody. it easy. But I do want to continue the conversation with you, Alison, around um, the topic of sports washing, not just these two clubs, the allegation to leveled at, in particular, Manchester City and their Qatari owners. Um, Of course, again, another club that denies um, any involvement in sports washing. Um, But the answers from Eddie Howe, for me, the reason that they are so unpalatable compared to what Thomas Tuchel has been saying recently is, and I've said this previously around even Steve Bruce's answers around the Saudi owners when he was the Newcastle manager. He admitted there were questions to answer. He just didn't answer them. But what Eddie Howe does, which is so different and which is which basically underlines what sports washing is about, is that he will not acknowledge there is any issue whatsoever, and that's what sports washing to me is all about. We just we we pretend it is all about football, all about the goals, all about the results, all about the beauty of the game, and there's nothing else going on. How did you feel about it? Well,
3: it, well I was in the room and it it felt uncomfortable because Eddie Howe said. I feel it's only right that I talk only talk about the football, and that (laughs) that's not saying I can only talk about the football. That's not saying I am restrained by the terms and conditions of my employment to only talk about the football. He's actually put a moral spin on it and said I can only talk. You know, it's only right that I talk about the football, which and then that makes you think, oh, oh my word, has he? I was sat there thinking, have you Eddie Howe, when you were approached by Newcastle, who did you discuss it through with and did you talk about the moral implications? Did you did you go yippee, I'm getting paid a whopping great salary bigger than I thought I was going to get at this stage of my career? I don't care where the money comes from, or did you talk it through with people and say, uh, do you know, should I take it? Do I feel conflicted? Are there ethical issues here? And I I did he did he have those conversations and he could conclude there were no ethical issues? Did he conclude I can handle it when people think they can talk to me about non on the pitch issues, or is he so insensitive to it he doesn't care or even think about it? And any one of those outcomes makes him a lesser man. Really, I'd, it's very strange that you would take the job. Was was he so naive to think that it would die down after a few days? Does he not read, did he not investigate what the human rights record is of Saudi Arabia? Was he blinded? Is he genuinely think you can take a job in football and all you're doing is taking a job in football? You're not taking a job with an organisation who employ you. So he, by keeping his answers so, you know, determinedly narrow, I feel it's only right I talk about the football. He's just making himself look one of various things or none of those things are palatable really it
2: is a huge issue these are questions that I think will continue to be asked at all of these clubs um, in particular if you are now raging at the game podcast I can announce the woke virtue signalling is over possibly can't make any promises for what's still to come we will be talking about Cristiano Ronaldo and giving you some reasons to be cheerful as well so you can smile a little bit stay with us on the game
0: As you're listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone.
5: It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. Work.
2: Right, before we leave the game podcast, it's time for some special mentions, some some positivity. I mean, we, we you know, Everton fans, Chelsea fans, Newcastle fans, we're sorry. So we're gonna give you some something to smile about before the end of this podcast. In particular, Manchester United fans. You should be happy. You should be happy mainly, though, for Cristiano Ronaldo. He scored that hat-trick as Manchester United beat Spurs 3-2. Four-word match report two bang average teams Um, but the match was memorable at least for Ronaldo becoming professional football's all-time top goal scorer with 807 goals by scoring that hat-trick somewhere Pelé is very unhappy okay I I saw this headline and thought is this right but it's, it's you know the stats guys the Guinness Book of Records I don't know who they've come to the conclusion that it's Ronaldo who is the greatest goal scorer ever but is he the greatest striker ever what would you say
3: you know when the debate used to be you know messi v ronaldo i was on the camp of messi because he just was more beautiful to watch more aesthetically pleasing and seemed quite humble in his general approach to his craft whereas ronaldo seemed to be creating the myth of ronaldo as he went along and seemed far too self-aware but of late, I've ended up quite—I mean, really—admiring him, and I can see why Tom Brady takes one look at him and says, oh, "I'm inspired. I'm coming back. I want to be—I <laughs> want to be involved in this." It's amazing the way he looks, ten years younger than he is. Uh, he, is he is an incredible physical specimen. His determination to score, his his whole—the the things about him I didn't used to like—seem to be what makes him great and account for his longevity i think that sense of ego and entitlement and that his but three goals were lovely he's a great finisher and it's but it's about his personality and his desire and determination to be the best player on the pitch i for some reason i've gone full circle and i just think oh, actually actually i think he's amazing
1: and I, I look, it was great. You know, I mean, you see, you see the, I saw the news come through, and just thought, you know, there is is a genuine wow of, you know, just when he's been written off again, or you know, people think oh, it, it's, you know, he's the fading force. He bounces back with that, but I think it's possible to go wow, to salute him, to salute his longevity, to salute all he's done, and say, you know, was he what Man United needed for this season? you know compared to someone to run a midfield um no he wasn't so you know i'm i'm glad i'm glad for the story of ronaldo um that you know we've got another great chapter to it but the fact is you know it's let's let's not pretend that it makes man united um suddenly look clever on on that signing
2: no i i would tend to agree with you on that one um but on ronaldo i i, I saw a comment on Michael Jordan from one of his former Chicago Bulls teammates about the way that he treated everyone and how he wasn't everyone's friend in the changing room and lots of his teammates didn't get along with him because he spoke to them in a certain way and and pushed them in certain ways um and it was all about him and he was very much um he wanted the rest of the team to be able to get the best out of him and and they all felt he was really self-centred but in their years of retirement and the years that had gone by they'd sort of understood why he was like that with them and he was just a relentless winner and And the older Cristiano Ronaldo gets and the more I see of him I, I'm starting to sense that you know it does come across outwardly as sort of that, that selfishness um But ultimately, if you know that you performing at your best is is the, the, the quickest and easiest route to success, then maybe that's why you direct everyone in that direction. Anyway, just thought we had to mention him. Still a great of the game and always will be. And officially the greatest goal scorer ever, according to those... That, that follow those sorts of things. Not me. Um, listen, before we go, we did want to do some reasons to be cheerful, inspired by our friends at Times Radio. Hi, Matt Chorley. Um Reasons to be <laughs> cheerful to end the, the, the podcast. What did you see this weekend that put a smile on your face?
3: Uh, well, I was at Stamford Bridge. Uh, two things. One was, as I said, the atmosphere was tense and difficult. But it was lifted when Antonio Rudiger decided to do his uh, high-stepping, silly dance mid-match for no good reason at all, I think, other than to just break the tension. And he does that from time to time, does silly things, which is fantastic. On a personal note... I turned up to Snuff Ridge. Not, I mean, I wasn't even sure. They're always so generous in the press box with the food. I thought, I wonder if we'll get food. I wonder uh, what would the impact be of, of the credit card freeze. All, all, all the big,
2: all the big oh. things. Yeah, all big, stuff. big things. Because
3: <laughs> if I don't eat, I faint. So, I, And then, uh, so I brought lots of cakes with me, just in case. And uh, so I walked in. And of course, you know, as Tuchel pointed out, it's, it's the people behind the scenes. You know, he's in a privileged position, but it's all the people connected to the club must be worrying about their salaries or their contract payments and so on I walked in the press room and Brian who mans the press room and has been doing it for the whole 27 years I've been going to Stamford Bridge uh, really lovely chap the first thing he says is oh Alison do you want me to look after your bike helmet and so he puts it somewhere safe so no one tramples on it so it remains safe and intact so that I can cycle home safely and at the end of the game he comes up to me to make sure he gives me back my bike helmet and then says you know Uh, don't forget it and cycle home safely and you think I went there with all sorts of preconceived worries about how people might be different but no they're just as behind the
1: scenes just as lovely Uh, sports washing
3: sports was it by Brian <laughs> this,
1: this is the cosy face you see. you see you're falling, you're, you're falling for it um, no well I, if I can go fully self-indulgent then I'll, I'll go um, I'm watching the joys of Luton Town versus QPR uh, with, with family yesterday and QPR won which was stopping the rot after some a wretched month but they won with a goal that were there VAR in the championship would have been disallowed for about 87 different reasons um so we were very much uh celebrate first of all obviously celebrating the winner but yeah celebrating the fact that um uh injustice injustice rules in the uh in the championship i, I mean and, it, and it's yet again it's another twist i mean I'd, if you look at the championship table basically there's about 10 teams that could get in the playoffs and um uh, and go up via that route and then i suspect that whichever one it is um will be uh absolute cannon fodder next season but um who cares about that at this
3: point
1: <laughs> it's more
2: virtue signaling i'm sorry i told you i couldn't i couldn't not go back to it before the end of the podcast emotional scenes at the london stadium Andre yarmolenko of course ukrainian international on the score sheet, back out on the pitch as well. Um, that's his first West Ham appearance since the outbreak of war in his native country and a very memorable Premier League moment, a huge moment for him. And it was, it is a reason to be cheerful because he's back out there. He had been given some time off, of course, but again, to raise the awareness of what's going on. I'm sorry to virtue signal or be woke, woke, woke once again, but that was the standout moment for me this weekend. Is that all right?
1: That's I'm not in touching. trouble that no it's touching them. That that <laughs> no it was, uh, it, it was a genuine moment as you say he's been when David Moyes said he's had to have time off because obviously he was just completely preoccupied as you would be with you know whether your family are being and friends are being uh, blown up then obviously it was yeah it it was uh, it was very genuinely touching
3: and I think just to be serious for a minute Jan Malenka obviously isn't the only Ukrainian who's been on the airwaves in Britain but for the most part they come on air and people from ukraine will say i want to thank the people of britain for their support and all they're doing for us and it's i'm I'm sure they're not trying to be clever but that is far far more effective than them saying we wish you'd do more because it makes you feel it does make you think are we doing enough Mm. oh they're thanking us Uh, why, why are they thanking us i don't think we are doing enough it's a it's a a better way into people's hearts to put pressure on the government to do the right thing.
2: And it was, again, a special moment. Um, Alison, Matt, it has been fantastic to be with you on the podcast today. Our thanks to Matt Lawton, who joined us a little bit earlier on, and to all of you for listening as well. I hope you enjoyed yourselves. Remember, if you are, make sure you're subscribed. You can subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times as well right now. Sign up. You'll get yourself one month free. So do check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We will be back on Thursday after more European football. See you then.